0: Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. My guest today is Ron Friedman, author of Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. In this episode, Ron applies the principles of reverse engineering to creative fields like writing and investing. We talk about how to study people who are the best in the world at what they do by breaking down and what it is they're doing that is contributing to their success and then working backwards to figure out how they did it. But this episode is not just about copying or cloning great investors or writers. To truly be great in our fields, we must put our own spin on what we learn from the masters we study. And Ron offers insightful suggestions and ideas on how to do that. If you want to push to become the best version of yourself, you won't want to miss this one. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ron as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Ron Friedman. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Ron Friedman, welcome to The Good Life. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. And I'm really excited about the topic of today's discussion, which is your new book, Decoding Greatness How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. And I absolutely love the book. And you look at top performers in business, you look at elite athletes, professional sports teams, authors, artists, chefs, all kinds of different elite professionals. And you look at how they have achieved tremendous success and reveal how they got there using a process you call reverse engineering. It's this idea of studying. Our contemporaries, studying those around us who have been successful in the past in our industry, and then extract some valuable ideas and practices around their work, their approach, and how they achieve success. And you start the book off with one of my favorite business stories about Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. I was wondering if you could just start there and maybe retell that story as a way to get into this topic.
1: Sean, I appreciate you asking because it's a story that I think more people need to hear. So back in the 1980s, computers looked nothing like the devices that we now use today. They they were not intuitive in any way shape or form. If you wanted a computer to do anything, you had to reach for a keyboard and input a rigid text-based language to input your instructions. And today of course we don't have to do that. We have a mouse that allows us to just point and click, and that the innovation that made that possible is something called the graphic user interface, GUI for short. Now, both Steve Jobs and Bill Gates were fascinated by this GUI idea, and it wasn't theirs. It was actually introduced by Xerox. And Xerox introduced it in the form of a computer called the Alto. And it's one that they never intended for a popular audience. They assumed that it would be limited to very wealthy organizations. And it's because they had a blind spot. Their executives grew up in the 1950s. They just could not conceive of a world in which computers were a household item. And so both Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. Knew about Xerox's innovation and were both trying to reverse engineer it, meaning they were both trying to study it and work backward to identify how it was created. Bill Gates in the form of Windows and Steve Jobs in the form of the Macintosh. And at the time, Bill Gates was working for Steve Jobs as a vendor. And Bill Gates came up with Windows while Steve Jobs was working on the Macintosh. And when Steve Jobs discovers it, all hell breaks loose calls him into his office, yells at Gates, and Gates delivers a devastating line, which is in the book, Decoding Greatness, which is, I'm going to butcher it a little bit. It's something to the form of, well, Steve, I didn't steal this from you. Rather, we both had this rich neighbor named Xerox, and I broke in to steal the television and discover that you had already stolen it. Now, in fairness to both of these characters, neither of them actually stole an idea. They took an idea that was underutilized and evolved it in a different direction. That approach of looking at what others are doing, breaking it down, figuring out how they went about it, and then evolving it in a different direction turns out to be the technique that has driven so many of the world's top performers. And so although this is kind of reverse engineering is kind of a well-known concept within the world of Silicon Valley, it turns out it's relevant to the world of art, and writing, and cooking, and business. And that's what my book is about.
0: Well, it's a really powerful idea. And there's something subtle, but really important in what you just said, which is taking an idea and putting a twist on it, putting your own spin on it, because just copying is not going to get you there. You're not suggesting copying. You're not suggesting taking something in whole cloth and trying to replicate it. You're saying learn from it.
1: Yeah. So- let's take a step back and and talk about what is reverse engineering. So what we're talking about here is studying the best in a field and then working backwards to figure out how they did it. And in decoding greatness, I talk about how this is done in a wide array of fields. So how writers are doing it, how artists are doing it, how business titans are doing it. And I give an example uh, showing you how you can reverse engineer a Ted talk to uncover hidden patterns. Hidden within that execution. And I give the example of Sir Ken Robinson, who has delivered the most popular TED talk of all time. And it's a talk in which he argues that creativity is basically beaten out of us in school because we are taught that we need to find the right answer. And in order to be creative, you need to be comfortable with a lot of wrong answers. And so at the end of school, Although children are very creative when they first enter, by the time they leave, the creativity is all gone. And so he's arguing for why we need to change the way education is delivered. So what I did was I took his transcript and I looked at what he's doing over the course of the talk. And I analyzed it on a variety of metrics and I turned it into a template for you so that you can apply his formula to your talk. But then I caution that if all you do is replicate his talk, chances are you won't be as successful as you might otherwise be. And the reason for that is because his formula works for him. It relies on his particular strengths. And in his case, he likes to tell a lot of jokes. You might not be someone who's comfortable telling jokes, or maybe your topic is one that doesn't lend itself to telling a lot of jokes. The other interesting insight when you reverse engineer Robinson's TED Talk is that you uncover that he tells a grand total of one persuasive fact over the course of 18 minutes. That's remarkable. If I was writing a TED Talk from scratch, I would assume that I need to beat you over the head with a bunch of facts. He doesn't, and yet he's got the most popular TED talk of all time. And so those are both insights that you uncover when you reverse engineer his talk, and it gives you a roadmap for creating your own. So I mentioned the fact that you can't just replicate his talk because his style might not be conducive to you, but there's another factor that's also critical accounting for when creating original work, and that is that audience expectations shift. If you've seen Robinson's TED talk, and now I hear Sean Murray's TED talk, it's going to feel a little bit done. It's not going to feel quite as fresh. And So you need to account for the fact that audience expectations shift, and how you do that is by taking an established formula and adding your unique twist. And in Decoding Greatness, I don't just show you how to reverse engineer proven examples, I also show you how to take those proven examples and evolve them in different directions. And Just to give you a a preview of some of the strategies, one of them is combining ideas from different fields. So a great example of this is Barack Obama. There's a story in Decoding Greatness about him and how he became a great speaker. Obama, when he first entered politics, was not the smashing success we think of today. In fact, he got trounced his first race for Congress. He lost by a margin of more than two to one. And he thought about leaving politics. And the challenge for him, ironically, was that he was a terrible speaker. And the reason he was a terrible speaker was because he was used to delivering speeches to his students. He was used to lecturing students as a law school professor. And voters did not appreciate being lectured to. And they let him know at the polls. And so, after he had that stinging loss, he evolved his speaking style by noticing what it is that pastors were doing at church. And when he came back to politics, his style had evolved. He was now using deliberate pauses. He was telling stories. He was using repetition. And you can see his evolution as a speaker and how much improved he became. And what I love about that story is it illustrates that Obama didn't find his talent or practice for 10,000 hours. What he did was he Found what was working in a different field. He reverse engineered it and he applied it to his field in order to create something that was genuinely new.
0: Yeah, I love this idea of connecting ideas from different fields and seeing what happens. You've got a great line there from Matt Ridley Creativity is when ideas have sex, (laughs) and (laughs) uh, that's the offspring, right? It's connecting these (laughs) things from different areas. And you bring up an interesting point in the book about creativity. We often think, well, to be creative, we need to go out and create something completely novel. And what your research uncovers or what you show in a number of different fields is that if you do something completely novel, you often turn off your audience. That people really, they might say they want something completely novel, but they really don't. They want something that's sort of familiar, but with a new twist.
1: Exactly right. And one of the things that I think is so enlightening about that is that all that pressure we as creative professionals put on ourselves to generate something that's completely original, it doesn't inure to our benefit. It's counterproductive. It makes us worse. And it's because as a species, we tend to distrust the novel. We far prefer something that has been proven in the past. And we express that preference in the way that we purchase products or we endorse leaders. We tend to reject ideas that are completely original. And this is research from Jennifer Mueller at uh, University of California, San Diego. She argues that when you present people with completely novel ideas, they tend to be rejected. And she has evidence for this in a variety of studies. There's also, you don't have to, you don't need a psychologist to tell you this because you see it in new products all the time. So, for example, the Apple smartwatch is a tool that I've recently purchased and I love it. It gives me a whole slew of interesting metrics about myself. And you would think that as soon as this idea of having a smartwatch entered the marketplace, it would dominate. But in fact, Smartwatches have been around for 20 years. Seiko introduced one either the year 2000 or 1999, and you know it had many of the same features. It had instant access to news, traffic, weather, and it failed spectacularly. And the issue was that audiences weren't ready for it. The same can be said for Amazon delivery service decades ago, and it failed. Same same for DoorDash. Before that, there was ta- ta- uh, takeout taxi in the in 1980s, where they would they would fax you a menu, and you would fax back the order, and you would have it delivered. And audiences just weren't ready for it. And so all that pressure we put on ourselves to be completely original, turns out not to help far better to find an established formula and push it just a little bit, make it a little bit more original and you are far more likely to succeed.
0: Well, let's talk about finding that established formula because you go into some really interesting detail about that. You offer this idea of algorithmic thinking and you sort of got into it with the Sir Ken Robinson's TED Talk, but Mm It's this idea of really breaking down a piece of art or some kind of uh, successful performance or maybe a book or a movie and trying to understand what makes it successful. And I think when you break it down and you show the examples in the book, what it did to me is it opened my eyes to the level of detail you want to get to, to understand what you call the blueprint before you start to think about how you're going to take this in a creative new way, maybe by combining it with a different idea. Can you talk a little bit about algorithmic thinking?
1: Yeah. So that word algorithm can scare some people. So let me explain what I mean. So an algorithm is a computer analysis that finds patterns in certain decisions and then makes predictions out of those patterns. So a very relatable example is how Tinder, the algorithm that that drives Tinder works. And so in the book, I go into it. And so how Tinder works is it asks you to rate several people indicating whether or not you'd like to meet them and whether you find them attractive. And you do that by swiping right or left. And once you've uh, swiped on a certain number of people, what Tinder's algorithm will do is it will analyze that set of people that you've deemed attractive to look for commonalities. And what it often finds is things that you are not even aware that you find attractive. So for example, you might rate a certain set of partners and you might think you're just rating them on their appearance, but in fact, it turns out that they all like spicy foods or they're all extroverted or they all like the outdoors. And now Tinder is able to use that insight to generate predictions of who else you might find attractive. How is that relevant to all of us? Well, it turns out We also need a set of examples in order to study and understand what it is that we find impactful about them. So in the case of if you're working in a company right now, you might collect examples of websites that you find pleasing, or you might look at memos that have made an impact on you or presentation decks that have won you new clients. And you can work backward to figure out what are the commonalities in these presentation decks or memos or websites. And now you can identify these are the features that can help me be more successful the next time I go at it. And so algorithms help us identify the first step to becoming great at anything. And that's becoming a collector and then analyzing the commonalities that those examples have in common. And that's the first step to creating your blueprint is identifying the ingredients that make something great.
0: So if I want to improve my blog post, I could go to a blog post that I admire that's successful, and sort of break it down. How long is it? How many paragraphs? Uh, mm-hmm. did the author ever use short sentences? How much of it's fact versus description? All those or things. What's the yeah, yeah, storytelling. Is our stories embedded in there?
1: It's all about asking yourself the question of, what makes this different? And how can I learn from this? How do I apply this to what I'm working on? And that mindset of curiosity And it's all about just not passively enjoying objects, but always asking yourself, how do I, what can I learn from this and how do I apply this to what I'm working on?
0: So we've got the blueprint. We start to think about our twist on things and you have a great suggestion, which is the twist can come from connecting different ideas from different genres or different industries. And we start to put that into place. It really comes down to execution, to really be great, you know, to achieve greatness we need to execute on that. And you introduced this idea of the vision ability gap, that we've got a vision, our ability is not quite there. And that's what we're going to face when we first start to try to use this reverse engineering. Can you talk about that gap and how we close it?
1: Yeah. So the first half of the book is all about how do you reverse engineer and how do you evolve your formula? second half of the book is about something I call the vision ability gap. And that terminology comes from a quote that Ira Glass, the famous NPR host gave about how when you first start out, there's a real gap between your vision and what you're trying to achieve and your ability to actually execute. And that gap is where a lot of people give up or move on to different fields. But if you're willing to do the work to bridge the vision ability gap that's how you can achieve great things. And the second half of the book is all about science-based principles for skill acquisition and improvement. And we could talk about a range of strategies for bridging that gap. I'll share the first one, which is the, the focus of chapter four. It's called the scoreboard principle. And the scoreboard principle basically states that anything that you measure, you will improve on. And it's stated as measurement begets improvement. And there's just a ton of research showing that we are attracted to numbers. And if you can create a scoreboard that helps you identify the elements that you need to execute in order to be successful, and that can range from a particular creation that you're trying to bring into the world, or it could just be daily life. What are the objectives that you're trying to optimize for? To the extent that you have metrics and you monitor those metrics on a daily basis, chances are you will improve. And just to make that concrete, If you're trying to consume more water monitor your water intake you're trying to lose weight monitor your calorie intake if you're trying to improve your hours of focus time at work monitor how many uninterrupted minutes you have at the office invariably you will improve on what you measure and the way I, i put it is that you know in sports it's really simple to succeed you need to score touchdowns or score goals or score points But in everyday life, unless you're clear on the points you're trying to score, you're not going to be successful. And so it's all about reverse engineering your ideal self and figuring out what are the points that I need to score in order to win this game.
0: Yeah, I'm a big believer in having metrics, collecting them, using them to incentivize and motivate. One of my favorite examples of this is a graph I saw of runners finishing a marathon, and it showed the number of runners at each minute interval as you got closer to two hours. And so there's a certain number of runners that will finish at uh, say 210 and then 220 and 230 and so forth. But the number of runners right before the major milestones, say two hours and 30 minutes, the number of runners that finish at two hours and 29 minutes and two hours and 30 minutes is much greater than the number that finished at two hours and 31 minutes. And it sort of drops back down and heads up. And you can see that there's a certain number that these runners have in mind. And as they get closer, they push themselves to get there. And I thought it was one of the greatest examples of the innate human desire to go after a number.
1: Yeah. And at the same time, there's also a danger in that, right? Because we there are all these vanity metrics that we're surrounded by, like the number of followers we have on LinkedIn and how many people are retweeting our tweets. And there's a reason why all these apps have scores, even though they're not, you know, they're not sports related. It's because they know that metrics are going to motivate you. And so you can harness that to improve at anything. You just need to figure out what it is you're trying to improve on. And, you know, I can tell you that for me over, over this period of having a book launch, it's a very grueling time. And I have become really sensitive to what are the number of hours of deep sleep that I get every night, because that is the driver for me of being on at these podcasts and being able to generate new articles and be creative and be positive. And I've been optimizing everything for sleep and it's paid off. That's the uh, lagging indicator for me is how many hours of deep sleep. But you can also identify what the leading indicators are by tracking. So the leading indicators are the things that you can control that will improve your performance on the lagging indicator. So for me, if the lagging indicator is deep sleep, the leading indicators, what I found to be, is cardiovascular exercise. And so on days when I can manage to squeeze in 20 laps in the pool or playing some racquetball or pickleball, I'm going to have a much better night of sleep. And so knowing that it empowers me to really prioritize exercise because now I know that it's an investment in my future performance.
0: Well, you mentioned uninterrupted hours at work, doing deep work, and we just had Cal Newport on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he talked about that metric along the lines of his new book, A World Without uh-huh. Email. And I assume you needed something like that to write this book. Did you, what, what metric did you use to help you write the book?
1: Writers will often use word count, and word count is useful for both tormenting yourself and getting yourself to be more productive. In the case of number of words, what I noticed is that at the beginning, it's a slog because I'm not in the writing mode. So I literally have like by day, how it's got a spreadsheet of how many hours, how many words I put in. The correlation between words and hours invested is not as strong as you might assume. You do get into the flow. So at the beginning, when I'm first writing, if I can get to 600 words, I'll be satisfied, but toward the end, once I've been doing it for a few months, there are days where I've easily hit a thousand and sometimes even fifteen hundred. But you know, it's I think it varies for nonfiction versus fiction. I think it varies on the level of difficulty of the particular passage. I'll tell you what what really has made writing a lot easier for me is it used to be where I get to a difficult part and I would just know that I would take me a long time to write this part. But now what I do is I lower my standards a little bit by pretending that I'm not writing a book that thousands of people will read. I'm writing an email to a friend and I'm summarizing that section. And that lowering of standards makes the section a lot easier to write. But often I'll find that it doesn't even require revision because all I needed to do was imagine one person reading it and communicating in a way that that person would understand. And that has really helped.
0: You mentioned with the metrics to be careful about the measurement too, and I think you you have a quote in there from Andy Grove that says something like "Be careful what you measure." I always ask yourself, "What if I'm too successful at that?" Because there is sometimes a downside to what you're measuring. Hundred percent. You also talked about how sports professionals are so keyed into metrics because we have there's so many metrics around sports. I think about baseball. I'm a baseball fan. I mean, you can just geek out on inside baseball right all of the the stats and i think baseball players are some of the most measured professionals in the world the rest of us out there you know we're doing consulting we're writing we're creative we are doing whatever we're doing in the business world we don't often have that incredibly rich data that sports professionals have and we also often don't get feedback or have a coach and i think it's a big gap it's a big opportunity can you talk about that what we can do? Should we have a coach? Should we be collecting more data and what can we what should we be doing with feedback?
1: Well, there are a range of strategies in decoding greatness about both, you know, questions to ask your friends when you want better feedback and how to leverage a coach a little bit better. But one of the things that I think is really underutilized, particularly when it comes to leveraging metrics, is identifying the features that you need to hit on in a particular project in order to be successful first and then measuring your performance on those metrics as a means of giving yourself immediate feedback on how well your performance has been executed. So in most workplaces, feedback is lacking. To the extent that we get any feedback from our manager, it tends to take the form of annual performance reviews which come once a year and by that point it's way too late and sometimes the feedback feels like it's coming out of left field. And Even in the case of writing emails or memos, we rarely get feedback on, yeah, that was a great email. That's not something you generally hear. But if you could identify what are the features that make for a great email, and so, for example, it might be brevity, it might be context, it might be value to the other person for delivering on the thing you need them to do quickly. It might also be connecting with that person on some non-work-related matter. So if you have those four metrics now, when you draft your email, you can look how well you executed each of those four elements, and if you didn't, if you if you don't have a, a high score on one of them, you can go back and adjust it. And that's a great way of giving yourself instant feedback while also improving your performance.
0: Well, it reminds me a little bit of Ben Franklin, you talk about this in the book, and some other well-known individuals who have created some kind of measurement system for themselves and periodically assessed their ability. Is that something that you've tried and others have tried and how has it worked for you?
1: Yeah. So I give the example of Ben Franklin and I'm not sure how many people, or how many of your listeners know this, but Ben Franklin actually was not the standout figure that we like to think of today. He was actually someone who was a heavy drinker. He was a gossip, notorious gossip. He, um,
0: a bit of a womanizer, right? A bit
1: of a womanizer, a better yeah. word than I was going to use. That's great. Uh, so yeah, and, and if you look at his metrics that he used on a daily basis, they're the opposite, right? So there are there's chastity, there's, um, I don't remember the exact words, but there are different elements that counter the features of his personality that he was worried about. And that enabled him, doing that daily analysis of his behavior, enabled to ensure that he was shaping his character in a way that he felt was desirable. We can all use that approach. And I give the example of Marshall Goldsmith, the executive coach, and he has 36 metrics that he measures his performance on every day, including how many minutes he spent writing, how many minutes he spent exercising, did he compliment his wife, and and those sorts of things. And what I love about that, I think that is so powerful about this is just taking the time to identify what are the things that you're trying to get good at will invariably improve your performance, even if you're not doing necessarily you know, every one of them every day. It's just reverse engineering your best self, working backwards, and then creating a system that keeps you accountable. Now, you ask, do I use this? I don't measure my performance using numbers in this particular way on these elements. But what I do use is I use a five-year diary, which is I talk about this as a means of improving performance in the book. And so A five-year journal, it's not a diary, it's a journal because journal sounds more manly. Uh, So a five-year journal is very much like a typical journal that you, you would think of, but it has five slots for every day of the year. Okay, And on each of the slots, it's very like maybe like three or four lines. You just enter what you did that day. And that's all it takes, five minutes, here's what I did today, or here's what I learned today, or here's what um, an insight that I want to remember in the future. And then you do this every day for a year. And then after 366th day, you turn to the page in which your original entry appears. And so you're able to see what it is that you did on this day one year ago. And after you do this for a few years, you've got a lot of entries you can go through, and you're constantly learning about yourself. You're discovering things that you had forgotten. You're strengthening your memory You are reminding yourselves of past lessons. You are building your confidence because you are reminded of all the obstacles you've overcome and all the overblown fears that you blew out of proportion. So it's it's a tool that is extremely powerful. And if you get your partner to do this, then you could compare what each of you remember about that particular day. And it's just a great tool for not just improving your performance, but enriching your life.
0: I love that idea. And I heard Penn from Penn & Teller talk about something similar in a podcast, that he keeps a journal, but he also keeps all of his old journals. So he, it's not that he has a five-year journal with each line there, but he, would, he got into the habit of going back and reading because he's been journaling for, I don't think it was like 30 years or 40 years. He could go back 5, 10, 15 years and look at what he was doing. And that became a really important part of his daily routine. Now, of course, he's put the time in, he's got the the data to do that. But So, the five-year journal is a great way to start. But I also think just reflecting, and you've got some great stories and some great research on this, just reflecting, even if you don't have the five-year journal going, just taking some time to reflect and think big picture for five, 10 minutes a day can be really powerful.
1: And the five-year journal automates that for you. So, I think, I mean, just selfishly, I would just tell you, like, that's not going to happen for me. I'm not sitting down for 10 minutes to reflect. But if I am made to write a few lines about what I did, because I view that as a as an investment in my future knowledge and my my future improvement, I will do that. And then as a dessert, I get to read what I did last year at this day. And invariably, I'll discover something funny my kid said, or... You know, some ridiculous thing that happened the year before. I'm trying to think of one from last night. There was one last night about something ridiculous. Oh, okay. My daughter, who's a teenager, you know, this was when the pandemic was hitting. So everyone was going a little bit out of their mind. So my daughter took my wife's cell phone and created an auto responder that was ridiculous and completely embarrassing to my wife. Now, I would have forgotten that because it happened a year ago, but now I'm remembering that. And now all of you know that too. (laughs) because of the five-year journal. So I think, I mean, just from from a strengthening memory perspective alone, I mean, it's super powerful. And you discover things about yourself. And I mentioned about, you know, how I generally don't love social gatherings, but I discovered by over the course of reading my five-year journal that I tend to like them a lot more than I anticipate. And so you discover new things about yourself that help you optimize your day-to-day.
0: Yeah, and really enrich your life, right? It's those memories that are going to bring significance and meaning as you reflect back on your life and have those those touch points. It's great. To that
1: point, I don't know how many people on your podcast have quoted Downton Abbey, but I'm going to go ahead right now. <laughs> you,
0: you might be the first, Ron. I might
1: be the first. Um,
0: but I like so the show.
1: There's a quote from Carson, who's kind of like the, the, the wise uh, butler. And he says, the business of life is the collection of memories and that's a powerful quote and we forget about that like that's what you need to think about for when you're going on vacations it's yeah. not about you know relaxing on the beach it's about am i creating memories right now because it's reliving those memories that we have a lot more enjoyment sometimes than actually going through those experiences
0: absolutely i have a quote from an investor we talk a lot about investing in the show and we try to apply the principles of value investing to to life and Actually, before the quote, the quote's from Monish Pabrai. I want to set the stage a little bit. One of my heroes in investing is Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett learned his style of investing from someone else, Benjamin Graham. And as I was reading your book and I reflected on Warren Buffett's approach to investing, it really fell right into sync with what you're talking about in Decoding Greatness, in that he learned this technique called net-net investing from Ben Graham, but then he eventually put his own twist on it where he started to take into consideration not just net tangible assets, but intangible assets as he was measuring a company. And it just fit beautifully. So I think what you're talking about in this book applies very well to investing, but there's another investor who really... Is reverse engineering Warren Buffett today? He's he's a generation younger than Warren Buffett. His name is Monish Pabrai. and he he sort of puts out a challenge. I would say to your to your philosophy in some way. Um, and I'd love to have you react to it. He says he calls it cloning. He doesn't call it reverse engineering. He calls it cloning. He says cloning is a really powerful mental model, and humans are incredibly bad at cloning. Humans will see something great, and they will acknowledge it. That's wonderful. But they won't clone it. If you're a cloner, you get a huge advantage in life. If you are a cloner, because the rest of humanity is not good at cloning. I wouldn't say it's a challenge. What you're, it may even be buttressing what you're saying. But I guess what Monish is saying is that a lot of people will read your book, but they still won't do this because it's hard or for whatever reason. So do you agree with Monish that most people don't do it and and why?
1: Well, certainly I think most people don't do it, and I think most people don't do it because within creative fields, there's a concern that copying makes you a hack. And that's a very reasonable concern. And this is why I think it's so valuable to have research. And we have studies, and I talk about them in in Decoding Greatness, about how taking the time to study someone carefully and actually actively trying to copy their work will make you more creative. And so there's a study conducted at the University of Tokyo where they had amateur artists come into the lab, and they had one group create a novel art three days in a row. The other group, they had them create original paintings the first day, the second day they asked them to stop and and pause and copy the work of an established artist and then resume their original paintings. And then they had objective raters come in to evaluate the creativity of the paintings. And what they found is that the group that had copied or cloned was actually more creative on the third day. And it wasn't by simply copying the techniques of the artist whose work they copied. It was going off in a completely different direction. The reason was because the process of of studying someone carefully and copying their work forced the artist to compare their initial inclination against the decisions of a master. And that process of thinking carefully about the options available to you opens your eyes up to new possibilities that you may not have previously considered. So that's the argument for why copying actually makes you more creative, not less. Now, in the case of the, the quote that you raised, most people are very bad at cloning. I agree with that. And that's why in Decoding Greatness, I talk about the processes that are involved. And it's not just about observing and saying, okay, that's interesting. Let me go and do that. It's going into that, you know, to the extent that you don't have to do this for everything. But the thing that you're really trying to better understand, it really is a level of analysis that is available to you that can help you better understand why it is that something is impactful. So it's not enough to say, wow, Ken Robinson's talk was great. It's about understanding how many stories did he tell? What percentage of the talk was devoted to anecdotes versus facts versus jokes? What's the emotional trajectory that he's taking me on as I'm listening to this? And you can apply that analytical approach as far as you want to so many things, but it's about just that inquisitiveness and having the process. And that's what I'm trying to offer people with the coding greatness.
0: Yeah. What I like about that is you give people the... The blueprint and the steps to do it. it, because I I do think we recognize, oh, that's great, you know that we see something and we recognize the greatness in it, and we've been exposed to it now, so it's a new idea we can take it and run with it. But we often don't, and you give a sort of set of instructions on how to do it. I think that's that's wonderful. You've got a great little section in the book about advice. If we ever get a chance to talk to an expert. You know, if I ever get a chance to ring up Warren Buffett or talk to Monish Pabrai or my favorite author, you've got some suggestions for how we might approach the questions we might ask. Can you talk about that cuz I thought it was really fascinating.
1: Yeah, so one of the challenges that most people don't re- realize when they talk to someone who's an expert is that that expert often will not necessarily know what it is that made them great. And more than that, they'll have a tough time communicating it to you. And it's because of a curse of knowledge. So the curse of knowledge simply states that knowing something makes it impossible to imagine not knowing it. And that's not because you are a jerk or because you're not interested in helping someone. It's because you literally cannot envision what it is like in their brain because you know so much and you're just taking that knowledge for granted. And so when you're speaking to an expert, Don't assume that they are going to be able to share with you what it is that makes them great and what it is you need to do to become great because they don't necessarily know. And even if they are trying to communicate that with you, they probably are not going to communicate that as effectively as you would expect because of the curse of knowledge and also because they automate a lot of the decision-making and don't actively think about it. And so it just becomes automatic to them. They have a hard time explaining it. In fact, I talk in the Coding Greatness about how there's research showing that if you talk to an expert about their decision-making process, 70%, up to 70% of the information will go missing. They just won't share it with you. And again, it's not because they're trying to conceal their process. They're just not thinking about it in a conscious way. And so I provide a list of questions that you can ask. And just to summarize some of the, some of the big buckets, there's journey questions, which is focused on what was the expert's roadmap to success? And so, an example of a journey question might be, what mistakes did you make at the beginning? That helps them think about their process and the learnings they had along the way. Another set of questions has to do with process questions. So, drilling down the specific steps that the expert needs to apply in order to bring their work to life. So, taking them through a list of questions like, what do you do first? And what's next? And what comes after that? And then the final bucket of question has to do with discovery questions. So getting the expert to pay attention to some of the unexpected revelations that they discovered through their journey. And so an example of a discovery question might be looking back, what was the most surprising thing for you? So having the set of questions can be really valuable because now you're accounting for the fact that most experts are actually going to have a tough time communicating to you in a way that is helpful. But now you have a set of tools you can go to an expert to reverse engineer how they got to where they did.
0: I think those are excellent types of questions. And of the three, my favorite is the, are the process questions. Mm-hmm. And just to kind of go back to a subject we were talking about earlier, writing, something that I'm working on is writing. Obviously, you just finished your book. One of my favorite books on writing is actually is a book called On Writing by Stephen King. And you may have read, read the book. But Stephen King in this book goes through his process, his daily process. And I think that's the most valuable part of the book because I'm never going to write like Stephen King, but I am going to write in my own way. But what I wanted to learn from Stephen King is how does he go about as a professional going through the steps of the day, starting with the, the moment he wakes up to that detail. And I, just, I found it really valuable to get that kind of insight into an expert's day or process.
1: Yeah. And to your point, you know, it it has never been easier to access experts than it it is today. You know, it used to be the case that you needed an introduction or you needed to buy some time. But now, you know, just do what you're doing right now, which is set up a podcast, set up a blog. There's never been an easier time to reach out to experts and get some of those advice. What you need are the questions to reverse engineer their performance. And this can help.
0: Yeah. And another quick example of that was a, interview I heard of Tim Ferriss interviewing Jerry Seinfeld about how he writes, going into a room and having an ending time, you know, saying, I'm going to write for one hour. He wants to be by himself with a yellow stencil pad and he's got what he wrote the day before sitting in front of him. And then he walks through his process of how he goes about writing a joke. And I think that's extremely valuable if you want to be a comedian. That's what you want to know. A lot of experts aren't good at Like you said, explaining—that's not meant to be the first thing they want to talk about when you ask them a question. So you—you got to get detailed.
1: Exactly right. Exactly right. And and you know, there's value in collecting multiple approaches from different people. Just because it worked for Jerry Seinfeld doesn't mean it's going to work for you. I can tell you, if I go into a room with a yellow stencil, yellow pad, it's not going to be funny. It's not. (laughs) It's not going to be Jerry Seinfeld material. But. Uh, If I hear it from Jerry Seinfeld, and then I talk to Sebastian Maniscalco, and then maybe Amy Schumer, maybe one of those approaches might work for me.
0: Yes, and we'll find our own way. I think that's probably one of the biggest takeaways of the book for me is learn from others, but listen to your voice through journaling, through feedback, listen to your inner voice about what drives you, what your passions are, where your curiosity is, and seek out Innovation and creativity that blends those two things. Maybe as a final comment, can you talk about that? And anything else you'd want the listeners to know as they go about, you know, trying to incorporate the ideas of decoding greatness into their daily life?
1: Yeah, I appreciate that, and Sean, that was well put. And I would, what I would add to it is that I think that a lot of us have been told these two basic stories about success for so long that we just assume that greatness is for someone else. Because the two main stories about success are that greatness comes from talent. So either you have what it takes or you don't. And the other big story is that greatness comes from practice, which is that you need 10,000 hours to invest in your field before you can become great. And I think those two stories, while well-intentioned and certainly true to a certain extent, are less true in creative fields and knowledge work. And I think that this third approach is actually the path by which many of the people that we admire have gotten to the top, which is find an outstanding example, have a system for taking it apart, figuring out what it is that makes it work, and then evolving that in your own work. And the more and more you do this, the easier it becomes. achieve at a high level because now you have a roadmap for starting and you don't have to wait for that bolt of inspiration to strike. And I'm hopeful that as people start reading Decoding Greatness, that they'll take away that message of, wait, I can still go to the top of my profession. I just needed a system for breaking down what it is that I love. And I'm encouraged by some of the feedback because I think people are starting to apply this and seeing some, some powerful results.
0: Ron, where can people find out more about you, your writing and the book Decoding Greatness? Well, the best place
1: to get the book is decodinggreatnessbook.com. And if you go there, you'll be able to get the book and also get a free course that comes with it on how to apply some of the strategies of reverse engineering. You can find out more about my company uh, at ignite80.com. That's I-G-N-I-T-E 80com thats ignite 80com It's called Ignite 80 because over 80% of employees are not fully engaged at work. So the mission of Ignite 80 is to teach them science-based strategies for improving their health performance, and creativity. And you can also find me at ronfriedmanphd.com.
0: Great. Ron, this has really been a wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for being on The Good Life. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.